You're listening to The Mix Podcast, where we explore user behavior, emerging technologies, and how to design better digital experiences. I think it's up to designers to draw their inspiration from a variety of sources, whether that's at work or outside of work, and to treat every single brief or problem as a challenge and an opportunity rather than um, feeling like by working on a client for long time periods, it's, it's bogging them down. Hello, welcome. I'm Marek Pawłowski, founder of Mex, and that was Omar Bakshi, design director at Smart Design. And he was talking there about I guess something of a a paradox, this sense that by virtue of how you approach it, even projects which are quite focused within a specific industry or with a specific client can actually become that source of tangential inspiration and wider learning, which I think a lot of designers recognize is key to their ongoing practice. But before we get into the discussion with Omar, and I tell you a little bit about his background and and why we came to be talking on the podcast, uh, I've got to tell you about our next MEX dinner. So after the one we had in Barcelona, we are back in London, 26th of March at 6.30pm, and there are still a couple of seats remaining for this one. And I've got a challenge for you. If you're coming along, if you're thinking about coming along, then I'm asking everyone to bring along one object which to them represents an example of either good design or bad design. Now, ordinarily with these dinners, we have a bit of a discussion theme proposed in advance, and it's just a way of getting people to think about a subject and getting the conversation going on the night. And we never do anything as cliched as getting everyone to stand up and give an introduction to themselves and go through their thinking and all that sort of stuff. It's really just a way um, of ensuring that uh, there's an opportunity to share some new ideas with whoever you end up sitting next to. And the idea of bringing along this object is no different to that. It's a conversation starter. So I'm going to be intrigued to see what people bring along. And if you're particularly interested in preserving harmony and the cosmic balance, bring two. Bring an example of good design and an example of bad design. Doesn't have to be digital, can be anything. Um, I'd suggest something not too huge. You know, it's not a particularly big restaurant that we're going to, but um, bring along something which uh, you think will be an interesting conversation piece. And perhaps during the course of the evening, you'll have a chance to talk about it with whoever you end up sitting next to. As always, you can find all the details about the Dining Club in the Dining Club section on mobileuserexperience.com. And if you'd like an invitation, then get in touch through the website or send me an email, designtalk at mobileuserexperience.com, and I can make sure you get all the details. So let's talk a little bit about today's interview. Omar Bakshi. So Omar is currently the design director at Smart Design, uh, but over the years, uh, and I've known Omar for quite a while now, uh, he's uh, had a bunch of different roles. Almost all agency side, Ogilvy, where he was the creative director, Ogilvy One, where he was the managing partner and head of user experience, um, AKQA. And when I met him originally, and this is going back some years now, he was at Decipher, where he was head of user experience. And you know, we talk a little bit about that during the discussion, because I think it was actually 12 years ago that Omar first spoke at one of our MEX conferences. And we had this panel, which was looking at one of the time was one of the big problems in the mobile industry. No one was using the internet on their phones. So we talk a little bit about how times have changed. Uh, We also end up talking a bit about the expectations of the next generation of users and how four-year-olds are going to have a very different relationship with digital things to the sometimes invasive presence that it's ended up being in the minds of millennials and, and olders. And uh, we also get around to talking about Omar's dream project, the one thing that he's really hoping to have the chance to work on during his career. So I hope you enjoy the discussion. 
I'll be back at the end with a few thoughts on where we are with the podcast and what's coming next. But for now, here's my chat with Omar Bakshi. So was that a conscious choice to go in that direction? You know, you'd started out with engineering ambitions and then wanted to focus more specifically on design? Yeah, so I, coming from uh, a culture from the Indian subcontinent, my um, my dad was an engineer. Um, and like most people at the age of 18, um, it's a very early age to start thinking about what you want to do for a career, I think. But not having... Having grown up playing with electronics and, say, as an electronics engineer, playing with circuit boards and constructing pieces of kit from you know, materials that um, were in his workshop. Oh, so that was in the house from like an early age? Early age, yeah. So um, I could use a soldering iron from the age of 14 <laughs> and would build, would build anything, really. I remember an early project was um, a burglar alarm, <laughs> just... Uh, used to get kits from Maplins or, you know, electronic shops and just start reading circuit diagrams and, and putting those things together. Um, but they tended to be, at that time, kind of physical products that had a bit of programming behind them. But my, my passion was in putting bits of electronics together. I think that's really where my interest in, in engineering started taking me. That's interesting. And I mean, as you say, there are some vagaries to the British education system, which do shape that journey a little bit at, at that age. I mean, I know a lot of the listeners to this show will not be in the UK, but yeah, for those who aren't familiar with it, as you say, at that age, at 18, you're really already starting to have to make some choices about what sort of subjects you're going to focus on in your last years of, I guess, the UK equivalent of, of high school for our American listeners, which are then going to guide what you choose to do at, at university. Um, so did you start to see that being a clear path towards something at that age? Or did that feel like a, a pressure at that point to make those decisions? Uh, a combination of the two, really, I think, just looking at the uh, uh, the as you said the path from that age it becomes quite a binary distinction between whether you want to go down a scientific degree or an artistic degree and you have to make those choices really from the age of 16 when you start thinking about what a levels you want to do or what foundation um, course you want to do at art college to lead on to what to do next so i think that happens quite early i i was lucky that the the nature of the engineering degree I was doing uh, was and I moved away from it very quickly it was mechanical engineering so there was some manufacturing of materials um, and and a bit of more more product design related modules up front when I started university and very quickly I moved from doing that being interested in that to going actually what interests me more is the ergonomics and psychology behind design so changed very quickly to doing product product design almost within the first month at university so changed to a, a design related degree which still helped me keep one foot in engineering and materials but started getting much more interested in designing designing products and designing services which university was this were they open to you making that change yeah it was loughborough university so the um the engineering and design school ran a lot of degree programs together that was where really where i made the change quite early and, and they were very very open to it because it because it was early and because it was still in the realm of of engineering um and design but it was it became really an from that point on a product design and industrial design degree um, and that's really what i continue to do um, for the next three years at, at loughborough yeah it's quite interesting that you know those tracks i think have naturally at least now as you go into professional practice have come together to a degree that perhaps wasn't recognized at that stage in the way they were being taught uh, i mean I, I get the feeling that's changing now from the relationships that i've had with the universities over the years to what we've done with the, the mex initiative but you know thinking back 
to then? And I'm guessing what sort of era would this have been? This must have been... Early noughties, so okay. just at the turn of the millennium. Yeah. I mean, do you, do you feel that that change has started to be recognised now? You know, when you see graduates coming to you now looking for jobs, are you starting to see that the courses they've been through have done more to recognise that merging of the disciplines? What what I'm seeing, um, so I, I do return back to Loughborough to um, lecture students and um, mentor them through some of their final degree projects and programmes as well. What, what I'm seeing is specifically from a design point of view in, in terms of postgraduate design, people coming from engineering, industrial design and more classical design backgrounds. So I think the importance of UX design and interaction design bringing together understanding of people and what to design for them is becoming a a lot more of a, a much more popular pursuit for students to pursue, um, but also bringing in a lot more students from diverse backgrounds and might traditionally have been the case. Yeah, I would, from my personal perspective, I, I see it as a pretty positive thing that you've got mm. that greater mix coming into it. Um, you know, we started working at MEX with Brunel University, which mm. I know has a long history with uh, with Loughborough. There's a bit of a rivalry there, I'm sure, going yeah. back a few years. But you know, in the, the years that we started working with, I guess it would have been probably 2008, uh, we started getting some of their students involved in the MEX initiative coming along to the conferences. And just thinking about how many of them have now gone from, I guess, what would have been perhaps more veered towards engineering paths, but actually mm. ending up in design and digital roles and seeing where their careers have gone. It, it was almost like a bit of an inflection point, that sort of time in the mid to late noughties when that really started to happen and, and the evidence of that started to uh, become a lot more visible, I think. Yep. And, and I think the value, the value that brings is... What I draw on from the time where I was interested in engineering and, 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 and began to study it was it's really about if industrial design or design is about you know, understanding in its purest sense, really understanding people and then designing products and services to meet their needs. The engineering mindset is really about then how do you take that to market how do you scale that how do you design it in a way that it can be you know used by millions of people that's what i think the value of having designers from different backgrounds is they all bring that different point of view um, and that different way of thinking about the problem which i think is really really a really positive thing how does that manifest in your day to day at the moment you know, you have a role now as design director at mm -hmm. smart design yeah, where my understanding is that you, know, you are taking on some of these challenges, which have you know, both the, the the research and the strategy element, and an element of being able to paint a realistic picture of how those things can be implemented at scale. Uh, but I mean, are you finding that 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 background has equipped you to be able to take on those challenges? Definitely, to have those those conversations with clients. So we have, I think the the, the way we try and approach things is to try and have a, a really multidisciplinary design team, whether they're from an industrial design background, interaction design, traditional visual design or communications, design research, some service designers as well. What we find more and more and more working with clients nowadays is they have um, they have their internal design and often engineering teams as well, whether those engineering teams are developing digital products or actually physical products if that makes sense so understanding the reality of how to take products from concept to market is really useful so that you can collaborate with them and make sure that the the products and services you're designing by understanding how you take those to market you can you know the, build some trust and collaborate and co-create that solution with the client so they can take it from concept with you to you know a product that ships. Yeah, perhaps there's a value in just having a shared understanding of each other's vocabularies. Yeah, that can do a lot to build that trust between teams, particularly when you're working as a 
an external provocateur at some point of mm. some description as an agency coming in and doing that. And that, that was one of the things which actually struck me. I had the chance to tour Smart Design's New York studio. Your mm. founder very kindly gave me a tour a few years ago. And I was amazed by the degree to which there were some pretty gritty workshops in the studio, you know, a studio which was also known for its digital work and its strategy work. And yet, yeah, here there were some places that you really could build stuff to quite a, a high level of fidelity. Is that something that in your role, you still get an opportunity to get that soldering iron out and keep those skills sharp? Um, or, or is that something which is in the realm of, of hobby for you these days? Uh, London is at, um, at, our workshop is at a much smaller scale, but we we have um you know we have industrial design capability here we lean very heavily on um new york for you know engineering as as you said pretty high fidelity concept prototypes depending on what the the, the project is yeah there's like a reassuring amount of sawdust around the place because <laughs> yeah. right? it is always a good sign yeah, metal metal shavings and 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 etc uh, etc et <laughs> lathes it was I remember when I visited the, and you have to remember the our the heritage of smart design is in industrial design. It's, it's physical product, but like a lot of strategic design companies these days uh, that came from those roots, we now see design products and services that can be purely physical, digital, or or actually services or products that span the two. But that that heritage has given us the ability to think like product designers it, uh, and you know, think about how you go from uncovering human problems through design research to then prototyping, designing, keeping an eye on how, how that actually will be, you know, something that needs to be built a million times over or, or, or more and, you know, sold on a supermarket shelf direct to customers and scaling digital products as well. It's all, now applying that methodology to digital um, products is, I think, really interesting. How important was that heritage when you were thinking about taking on this role at Smart Design? So I was reading a, an article that you wrote on Medium a little while ago mm. where you talked about the transition that you made and the way you described it. You, know, you went from essentially ad world, being part of a creative media agency background, to then uh, moving to what is seen I guess, as a, a design-led firm like Smart. Um, did that heritage in industrial design, the fact that Smart does have that deep history, uh, play a role in, in convincing you to make that transition? Yeah, very much so. I think the, you know, the, the major steps I've taken uh, or the, the, you know, the path that I've taken through my career has all, has all armed me with, and I've been really lucky to have worked at you know, some really great agencies, on, on great brands. Um, each of those agencies has given me a different perspective on, on, on design, uh, you know, whereas AKQA was really about how to, you know, support experiences with digital products. Ogilvy definitely about how to really be sympathetic to a brand and what, a, you know, brand's purpose is um, and bringing together the old school world of advertising and, actually how you support a brand through digital products and services and experiences together. But I felt that the way that design is going at the moment, where it is much more, much more holistic, it's much more about being agnostic of the, the canvas you're using. It's, it's much bigger than digital versus physical. I felt like the, the heritage of an industrial design company that's now moving into much more broader, you know, broader design problems and solving those problems with much more holistic solutions. That was definitely a big draw for me um, to make the leap from um, Ogilvy to, to Smart Design. Is there a significance to Smart being an independent design agency? Because it's part of a diminishing breed in that regard these days. I mean, when I think back over the years of all the different agencies, for instance, that have been involved with our MEX conferences, hmm. a, a substantial number of them, probably the majority of them now, have become part of 
larger organizations, often professional services firms you know, who have their background in, say, doing big you know, IT integration projects. You know, this has been a trend that those sort of companies have been acquired. And yet Smart, as I understand, remains a, an independent agency. Is that mm-hmm. something which has a, a significance to you personally? The, the, the main impact I've found it's had or the, the thing I've noticed is it allows the projects we choose and the clients we choose to work with. It allows us to be quite selective. And another draw of, of Smart that I had, certainly when I joined, is it's very purpose-driven as well. So it has that, you know, designing inclusive design heritage that is about, you know, creating things that have real meaning and and, and purpose. And that really being, I think, any any design studio that's independent, it allows them to be quite selective over the types of projects and clients they choose to work on, including self-initiated projects as well. That I think if you're part of a bigger holding company, you don't necessarily get that freedom so much. That's yeah, an is- interesting one, isn't it? I mean, I guess in some ways when organizations bring in a design agency, they're, they're hiring culture as much as they're hiring a set of skills and, and capabilities. And that culture has got to come from somewhere. As you say, it comes from the, the flow of projects that that organization is working on. It comes from heritage, uh, but also it comes, I, I suppose, from the things that you're able to do as speculative, independent projects on your own to, to shape those skills or, or shape that, that culture. Yeah. Uh, and, and I think we... Uh, throughout my career definitely the often the the client when you're pitching they they buy the people the culture as you mentioned they're quite important when choosing when being selected i think by by a brand to to work with them and i think as you as you said if you're if you're independent um, it allows you to uh, build that culture of, of being selective with the types of projects you work on it feels depending on the scale you're at as well it feels quite you know family run family owned the the um, the people that tend to be in the pitch or the people that tend to work directly with the client are the people doing the work it just feels it just feels a lot smaller and a lot more i think um, not just being independent but also being slightly smaller in terms of scale that it's much more of a partnership between agencies and brands that's not a criticism of big agencies at all as i said I've, I've worked in those agencies for a long time but that is a big difference i think between larger agencies and smaller independent ones so um, when you think about what your expectation was going into this role with with smart design about the kind of projects that you're going to be mm. working on the kind of things that you are going to be called to do yep. which is the one which has surprised you most since you started i think the scale of the question or the problem that we get asked to solve is far bigger than i've been used to in the past that's really exciting but that is that is quite a big big difference for me so thinking back to one uh, one project i can think of where a manufacturer of um, home electronics um, consumer electronics approached us to develop their health fitness and wellness strategy that would tie together their ecosystem of fitness products essentially um yeah that's not a small ask no exactly and and i think ordinarily in whether it's a digital agency like a rga or an akqa or an or an ad agency like ogilvy publicists whoever it might be the, you'd you, you'd be you'd be bought in slightly later. Where it's here's the value proposition that we've developed. How do you how do you create? You know how does that manifest itself to the consumer? And you can still do really interesting stuff, like really you know interesting digital services that health services that tie those things together, or a really noisy ad campaign that uses digital in a really interesting way. But I think understanding you know unmet human needs, which we often start with that that question is what's what's the real human need here what do people need speaking to um, experts in the industry and then coming you know essentially developing a really big scary proposition to go here's a big vision that's going to inform your the products and the services that you need to be developing to meet this real untapped need that we've identified 
that's that's been the, the most interesting project i think so and how interested were you yourself in the area of health going into that and i mean do you find that's an advantage when you're getting stuck into a product if you already have an interest in the area or do you prefer to go into it where you can learn from the ground up to, to some degree i i mean i'm interested in in health and fitness but i think you know my role as a designer is to be able to put myself in the mindset of the end user that's eventually going to be who is essentially the the, per- the person that we're designing this product or service for. And, you know, throughout my career, I've had to get up to speed with Ferrari really quickly um, and become, you know, put myself in, in that mindset, even though I wasn't necessarily a big car fan, I did become one very quick by, by working on that project um, or working on Nike. You have to, I think, early in a project, whenever you're working on a brand or a sector that you're not that familiar with, it's your it's your job as a designer to become as much of an expert in that field as you can, so that at least you can put yourself in the in the in the shoes of the the, the person that you're designing for that is likely to be a sports fan or a car fan or really into health and fitness. If that makes sense, it, it does. Yeah, I mean, I think that's one of those fundamental challenges that a lot of people who are in design roles face, and striking that balance between becoming enough of an expert to be able to understand which questions you need to ask, and yet, I suppose, at the same time. I'm trying to maintain that distance, which allows you to be a little bit more objective than the individuals that you're mm. using to inspire the work that you're, you're going to do. You know, that's, that's, I guess, the difference between being a user and being a curator of other users' opinions and therefore able to be able to, to design off the back of that. I mean, that's, a, I don't know if that for you is a conscious balance that you have in mind as you, you go through that process or whether that's something which just becomes innate over time. I think it's the the objectivity is important. I find I do that by trying to almost treat myself as an early adopter rather than a user sometimes. So if I'm trying to embed myself into health and fitness, it's really trying to understand how how consumers are today, as you mentioned, and through observing them or talking to them and, and curating that, but also trying to just really immerse yourself in the whole marketplace, understand what what the big trends are from a technology or a behavior point of view and, and, and bringing those two things together, I think is important and allows you to maintain a bit of detachment from treating yourself like a user, but still having that understanding of what the user needs. Um, I think is important. Do you, do you need the variety of different industries and, and cases to be able to challenge yourself to, you know, I guess to keep that thinking fresh? I mean, one of the things I've, I've noticed about the roles that you've been in is um, they've been primarily, perhaps ex- exclusively even agency side rather than mm. client side, where I guess there's an element of having that that constant variety. I mean, is that something that you feel is always going to be important to you in your career? Or could you ever imagine going into a role where you were focused entirely on one company, on, on one industry and, and going client side? I, I still think that's the, that's the advantage of agency work and agencies. So if you flip that problem you were talking about previously on it on its head um it does require being in an agency work on lots of different brands to immerse yourself in categories that you might not be comfortable with um, but on the on the flip side of that it's actually allowing you to have a really broad view of different categories very different consumers uh, or and and different behaviors um, that allow you to bring that thinking into at first glance it might not seem relevant to health the fitness might not seem relevant to automotive but you know bringing that thinking in can make you bring you a really fresh perspective to uh, a problem or a client when they're not looking at that other all those other categories and and actually make the be really exciting from a designer's point of view that you're working on all these brands but really provide a lot of value to the client as well because you're bringing that 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 you know that different that different perspective and and nowadays particularly as technology gets much more connected it's it's becoming more important i think to bring different learnings from different categories into another uh, another client or another problem that might at first seem 
like it's not relevant, but can actually bring really interesting and inspiring thinking to the problem. So where does that responsibility lie? I mean, when you think about designers who might be training at the moment or coming out of university and how they're going to equip themselves with skills which are going to be valuable longer term in, in their careers, because I, I very much agree, you know, I think that uh, access to variety, being able to synthesize insights from different industries, see those connections is a really important skill. But does it does the responsibility lie with the individual designer, with people such as yourselves, to keep themselves engaged and keep those inspirations, those sources of inspiration fresh? Or is that something where there should be an expectation that the agency that they work for, the in-house team that they work for, has a program to support that and to make sure that that is part of, of ongoing professional development? That's a good question. I've, I've found that working on a client um, as i've as i've become more experienced as a designer i've found uh, that i've become that that working on a client for slight a slightly longer time period than than i work, would have worked on on a on a one off project in the past for example does allow does allow you as a designer to build more expertise and more trust in that sector and with that client that allows you then to push the work that they're doing or you know really push the envelope in terms of design and innovation i i feel that's quite important but earlier earlier in my um, career I, I found that working on different sectors and different problems equip me to um, learn how to immerse myself very quickly into different problems and under uh, and different categories and, and then learn quite quickly so I, I don't think it's a necessarily um, a one-size-fits-all approach. I think it's up to designers to draw their inspiration from a variety of sources, whether that's at work or outside of work, and to treat every single brief or problem as a challenge and an opportunity rather than um, feeling like by working on a client for long time periods, it's, it's bogging them down. I feel like that's an opportunity to you know, push the client to do more interesting, better work. Um, and the more you work with them, the more opportunities there, there are to do that. And do you personally have sources of external inspiration that you go to you know when you as i guess we all do at some points feel like mm. you've got a bit sort of stuck on a particular project or, or in a particular role what are your go-to's are you a, a podcast listener are you someone who who reads are you someone who goes to museums and, and institutions i i think lucky living and working in london because there's inspiration almost on every um street corner <laughs> Um, but yeah, well, there's a, a walk at lunchtime to see street art all over, all over Whitechapel, um, or, uh, or going to, uh, you know, a drawing class. Um, I, I think I found more recently I've branched out, even though I'm not necessarily comfortable at it, into just very different forms of design that I might not have studied in the past, uh, typography, drawing. Um, so I, I find that quite inspiring. But also, uh, you mentioned podcasts. So, I, I try and my diet of um, podcasts tends to be things I think can um, help me to be inspired, but they're not necessarily about design. Um, that's that's where I take my inspiration from. So so not not reading or listening to a, a podcast or reading a book on how to design, for example, but just trying to take myself um, out of the mindset of whatever currently I'm looking at. And um, well, I guess you're in the lucky position of being on podcasts, which are about yeah. how to design. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but no, exactly. I'm very much the same, actually. I, I tend to find that the particularly the podcasts that I value most are those which are often sort of furthest from what I'm actually doing day to day, um, because they give you insight into stuff that you wouldn't otherwise experience. Do you have any particular go to's that you always make sure you you listen to or do you tend to sort of hop around between different podcasts? I I tend to go through fits and starts with podcasts, I find. So I'll, uh, non-fiction, definitely. Um, and I'm trying to just remember the, the name of it. It's uh, Revisionist History. That's the one I've been getting into that one recently. Um, oh, interesting. What, so what's the story with Revisionist History? It's um, uh, it's a behavioral, um, it's, by, it's by Malcolm Gladwell. And uh, so Malcolm Gladwell is um, one of the early, I think, pioneers of behavioral science for economics. Um, and he essentially 
uh, revisits uh, often underappreciated or not necessarily well-known historic events and essentially uses those events to talk about how you know quite a, a big potentially quite a big um you know a historic moment has been overlooked or maybe misunderstood and essentially explaining that through uh, you know irrational behaviors um, amongst people whether that's you know lack of equality or other you know big societal changes that sounds um, intriguing a, i'm gonna to have to add that one to my list of podcasts to, to check yeah, out yeah it's a, it's a good one um, and i've i've always been i've always been particularly when i was more focused on on being a ux designer always been interested in in, in behavioral science and and psychology um, and how that how that can affect quite small things can actually have really big behavioral impact yeah, I guess it's one of those sort of foundational pillars that really influences a lot of, or should influence a lot of how user experience is delivered, you know, particularly in the, the digital realm. Um, mm. it, I mean, it actually makes me, me think back a little bit because the the first time you got involved with MEX was way, way back at, at MEX 3, which was our conference in 2007. And in doing a bit of research for this podcast, I try not to do too much research ahead of these podcast conversations because you know i think it's good just to, to chat and see where it goes but i was doing a bit of digging and i found the notes about the panel that you're on at that point and back then um one of the conclusions of this panel was the biggest challenge is that no one is currently using the mobile internet at all and the panel wanted to see new ways of engaging the consumer and push methodology was one of the things that was was recommended i was thinking you know that was 12 years ago but actually 12 years in in the grand scheme of the evolution of human behavior is not a great deal of time. And yet in that 12 years, we have seen a really significant shift to the point now where we have podcasts, we have long form content, we have video content, all of these things being delivered down to our mobile devices. And if anything, the problem now for many users has become one of, of digital overload. And, you know, I'm wondering how we got to that point in really what are 12 fairly short years and where, you know, that sits in relation to things like podcasts in the future, you know, how we um, we overcome that sense of overload and, and what kinds of content are going to be the palatable things that people consume. I mean, is, is this something that you've had a chance to think about on any of the projects that you're working on about, you know, what the, the future shape of how we consume all this wonderful information is, is going to look like? I mean, it's a it's a big question, and I think trying to predict where where the world and, and twelve years ago, no no one could have predicted where we are today. I think, um, as you said, it's it's um, moved on significantly from twelve years ago. Absolutely. I mean, and, when you think about that conference, you know, the room was largely comprised of people at operators and handset manufacturers who are all sort of desperate for ways in which they could make people consume more. Mm. And then suddenly the floodgates opened and we're in a very different place now. It's a, it's a really interesting um, paradox as well as you, as you mentioned. So back to um, the, the earlier question um, or project we were talking about. Um, so you had a consumer electronics brand talking about how we um, improve people's health, fitness and wellness. And actually a big element of that is uh, potentially quite brave for a brand like, let's let's say, Google, Apple, or, you know, these brands start to look at digital detox as actually being quite important to the point where you're starting to see them integrated into, you know, the operating system of handsets now. Keep an eye on how much time I'm spending looking at my phone and then notify me when I'm spending too long on Safari. That's that's a really interesting trend, I think. It, it really um, is. And when you contrast that with where we were previously, like in, in 2007, where those same data were being looked at, but the goal was increase rather than decrease. And the people that yep. were looking at them were the gatekeepers, were the likes of the operators and so on, who were all desperate to increase that. And now the way it's been delivered to the consumer, the way the end user experiences that now is, is on the opposite side. I mean, step it, just stepping back from podcasts and consumption of content for a moment, if you just think about what's what could the next shift be, it might be, you know, how do how do brands help users actually, how do they actually facilitate 
content consumption, but not to the point where you are absolutely being overloaded with content 24-7 and move. Uh, you know, there's there's definitely going to be, I feel anyway, a big shift from mobile handsets and staring at screens to new forms of interaction, whether that's voice or, you know, wearables or different form factors that are going to supersede the, the 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 mobile phone handset as it as it exists today i think that is likely to happen but also what's going to be really interesting i think is we've we've we haven't seen the generation that has really 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 grown up with this technology yet reach maturity so i'm thinking of people um born in the last let's say five years that from the age of three or four are interacting with these devices that to me is is really interesting to just look at how they are spending the amount of time they do on these devices but how they their interaction with it is very different in that they see it as almost a subservient thing it, 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 a four-year-old will be really um I, I think anyway when they speak to alexa order it about and, and they'll they feel that sense of entitlement from digital whereas someone my age or or slightly older that has has just not grown up with it it's it's sort of been integrated into their life when their personality and their their behaviors have been formed might be a lot more polite is when that making sense that, it, it does yeah and i mean i've observed similar things with you know family members who are of that sort of age um and you're right i think that there's a couple of interesting things with it firstly that you know when you say like on devices actually these days it, it's really not so much on devices in the sense that we grew up with it where you had you were physically holding the device that you were engaging with in some way it could now be these voice interactions you know things like alexa and google home and all those kind of products that are coming out but also as you say the 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 style in which those interactions happen is different and i'm wondering where that that comes from is that simply familiarity is there a generational thing going on there about the expectation of the role of that technology and, and what it does within users lives it's it's the context of not having done without it so uh, you know i've i think users of a certain age will have you know been reliant on tv scheduling for example before pvrs were really uh, you know digital tv recorders and sky plus and on demand content and whether that's on your phone or your tv before those things really 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 became really common they still have you know some level of relationship with technology where it hasn't always been one tap away or one click away i think when you've not had the context of doing without having things available at a moment's notice at your fingertips that is where whether that's a generational thing or not is where people's mindset and attitude to technology is going to be very different that manifests itself as the four-year-old ordering technology about and being very reliant on it, I think, versus someone of a different generation that's going to interact with it a bit differently. Yeah, I, I always find it fascinating how kids of that age do seem to love to order things around. Um, <laughs> I mean, we have a dog, for instance, and our nieces and nephews love the idea that they can tell this dog what to do and he will do it. And it kind of makes you wonder if at that age, because you're so used to normally you know, having uh, the adults around you uh, kind of lay out the pattern for what your life is going to be, when you suddenly realise that there is a pet or an appliance like Alexa or one of the Google Home devices that will do what you tell it to do. That must be a pretty fascinating learning when you're four years old. And I think that is probably going to create a really seismic shift over when we're talking in 12 years again. I don't necessarily know where we'll be, but I think we'll have a we'll have a, you know a real slew of the of the world will have a fundamentally different relationship with technology than people today, and that is. That is just going to be very hard to predict how that manifests itself, but it will be it will be fundamentally different. Twenty thirty one. I'm going to need to put a date in the diary for us to get <laughs> back on uh, another podcast conversation. By then, of course, you know we'll probably be doing it with some sort of virtual reality headsets, and people will be able to come and, and join in the, the virtual space embedded, with us. I'm sure. Embedded technology. <laughs> Absolutely. 
Um, yeah. Okay, so I mean, before we get to 2031, uh, mm-hmm. we have a, another 12 years in which you no doubt are going to be doing interesting things in this world. Mm-hmm. And I'm I'm wondering, this is something which I tend to ask most of the people who come on this show, and I'm always intrigued by the answers. Yeah, given that you've worked on a pretty wide variety of stuff so far, by virtue of being in, in the agency world, are there things which you haven't yet had the chance to work on that you're really hoping you will do before we get back together again in 2031 to catch up on these? That's a good question. What's the, the one industry that you're particularly keen to get your teeth into or the, the one problem that you um, are puzzling over at the back of your mind? I've always wanted or always been interested for a variety of reasons in it's going to sound a bit trite but a gaming console particularly nowadays if i mean that would be quite a dream project if um very probably quite unlikely to happen these days um as product development tends to happen internally at sony or microsoft etc but i think to design the form factor the ui the you know the game controller the interface the vr headset of a really iconic game console would be really interesting are you a gamer Um, yourself i used to be more of a gamer than i am uh these days but i think the other thing that's interesting um about game uh, so in answer to your question used to be big time now more of a casual gamer on on mobile or um it's a bit more of a an ad hoc gamer but i think because they're moving towards being much more connected devices and connected entertainment devices as well, they become a lot more diverse. So, you know, there's lots of, there's lots of PlayStations out there that are being used just as much to stream Netflix and TV as they are to spend time playing um, games on. But I just think there's something really iconic and there's still a big noise around a game console launch. They just, there's something about the way they capture people's imagination that I think captures mine definitely and i think that would be a really interesting uh, project to work on so i've got to admit i'm not a gamer in the slightest i mean sort of way back when i was much younger i think uh, i remember having a sega master system back in 80s 90s maybe yeah. whatever it was but that's about the extent of my my gaming involvement but i'm curious you know knowing what you do of that area where would one look for inspiration you know if you were recommending to someone these days to go and check out a gaming experience that would um, get the the creative juices flowing what would be your your recommendation of a particular game or a particular console to go and take a look at i've always and maybe it's just because i think like most gamers you tend to focus on following one brand if that makes sense so um I've, I've flipped around a bit, but since the PlayStation 2, I've gone from the 3 to the 3, um, and then obviously most recently the 4 as well. And I think I'm going to rewind back from the 4, actually, and the PS3, not necessarily the gaming experience, but I think the way they designed quite a few years ago now, a really simple, quite magical UI that stitch together gaming your gaming profile netflix and other forms of entertainment in a really scalable and quick way i think that was a bit of genius actually i think that's a really really big design problem to to solve and i think they solved it really well not just functionally but it it felt like when you used it a really ambient responsive living thing just just thinking back to that that was really i think the first time i used it i was i was blown away i remember and that that just thinking back now that's probably what has led me to say that something like that would be a dream project i think because it, it brings together so many i think a lot a lot of the time when people talk about design they often focus on the pixels or the you know the screen or the functionality or, or what's the whether it's a, a mobile phone ui or a, a handset or something physical something digital they, they often focus on the execution, which is really important. But I think that ties together lots of, you know, how do you make something feel emotional? How do you make it function? Um, but how do you then make someone see beyond the function to make it really delightful to use? Um, and then how does that work across not just your game console, but for Sony, you know, how does that work across a whole ecosystem of other products that they, they might provide you in a really coherent and consistent way? That's really interesting bit of a ramble but that's yeah 
I think that's quite cool. Well, perhaps it, it comes back in some ways to some of those things we were talking about earlier about that value of being able to spot those sort of tangential connections and that really interesting things can happen when you do a good job of integrating different parts of people's lives or, or different mm. industries that they have in their life uh, in more meaningful, more interesting ways. Well, look, Omar, it's been wonderful to have this chance to catch up and hear a bit yeah, more about what you've you've been up to. Um, thanks very much for coming on the show. Uh, I'm going to put that date for 2031 in the calendar. Yeah. And if not before, we will catch up again then and see whether the, the game console project came true. Sounds good. Thanks very much. Great. Cheers. So there we go. Omar Bakshi, design director at Smart Design and the guest for episode 56, episode 56 of Mech's Design Talk. You know, it's it's a weird thing. And I've been reflecting a little bit on this. Um, for some reason, the number 56 seems significant. And it's been about three years since I began recording these podcasts. And it is kind of a weird thing. You sit talking to a microphone. And most often I'm sitting in my study, looking out of the window at my bay tree. Today, the rain is pouring down the window panes on a pretty blustery, rainy day here in Norfolk. And you have to go through this weird process of talking to people that you can't see. So it helps to picture, to really try and picture who you're talking to. And the great thing is that I do know a lot of you and because of things like the dinners that we do where people have been on the podcast or people have been listening or some way interested in, in the show or what we're doing with Mex get together. Many of you are people who have come along and spoken at conferences in the past. So I have had the opportunity to, to meet a lot of you, which is great. But every time I hear from someone who has been listening to the show, has been listening to these podcasts, it helps me get a sense of who's out there and also where we might go next with the show. I mean, have you been listening since the beginning when often it was Alex Guest and I exploring different aspects of user experience together and then also sometimes talking to a, a guest um, together and, and interviewing them together? Uh, are you a new listener who's turned up for the first time here because you know Omar and heard about the podcast through him? Are you listening on the way to work? Are you listening while you run? Uh, all of these things uh, are good to know, uh, it, it helps. Uh, next time I sit down to record one of these and I'm looking out of the window at my bay tree, it'll help give me a sense of who it is is out there and, and who I'm talking to. So the email is designtalk at mobileuserexperience.com or whatever way that you'd normally get in touch with me. Just drop me a line and tell me a little bit about how you're listening to the show, what you might like to see in the future, what you think of the episode so far. All of it is useful feedback, which helps to shape where we might go next. Now, I'm going to be back soon with another episode. Uh, you'll find all the show notes and the archive of all of the previous episodes, all 56 of them, at mobileuserexperience.com in the podcast section. But for now, thanks for listening. Goodbye. <laughs>